Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're diving into zombie literature. This particular foray was actually inspired by the last episode of Blue Stocking because World War Z, with its collection of interviews detailing the zombie apocalypse from its early stages through rebuilding after the worst of the threat, is also an epistolary novel. World War Z is written by Max Brooks, who also happens to be the son of Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks. It's honestly one of my favorite novels. I'm trying hard to think of anything else I've read more than twice, and apart from Harry Potter, The Chronicles of Narnia, and a number of YA novels in my youth, nothing comes to mind. I'm trying not to linger too long on the fact that most of my repeat offenders are intended for a much younger audience. But back to the book. It's just a very compelling read, and he manages to capture such a wide array of humanity. I feel like it's a great anthropological study, in addition to being very entertaining. Now, if you're thinking, I've seen the movie, I don't need to read the book, think again. Now, I enjoyed the movie as much as the next person, but in a totally different way from the book. I think they both stand on their own as compelling works and bear very little resemblance to each other. In fact, Mr. Brooks turned down the offer to write the screenplay because he felt he couldn't do it justice. I don't know about that, but I do know he wrote a great book, some of which I'd like to share with you now. From the Introduction of World War Z by Max Brooks. It goes by many names. The Crisis, The Dark Years, The Walking Plague, as well as newer and more hip titles such as World War Z or Z War One. I personally dislike this last monitor, moniker as it implies an inevitable Z-War too. For me, it will always be the zombie war. And while many may protest the scientific accuracy of the word zombie, they will be hard-pressed to discover a more globally accepted term for the creatures that almost cause our extinction. Zombie remains a devastating word, unrivaled in its power to conjure up so many memories or emotions, and it is these memories and emotions that are the subject of this book. This record of the greatest conflict in human history owes its genesis to a much smaller, much more personal conflict between me and the chairperson of the United Nations Post-War Commission Report. My initial work for the commission could be described as nothing short of a labor of love. My travel stipend, my security access, my battery of translators, both human and electronic, as well as my small but nearly priceless voice-activated transcription pal, the greatest gift the world's slowest typist could ask for, all spoke to the respect and value my work was afforded on this project. So, needless to say... It came as a shock when I found almost half of that work deleted from the report's final edition. It was all too intimate, the chairperson said during one of our many animated discussions. Too many opinions, too many feelings, that's not what this report is about. We need clear facts and figures, unclouded by the human factor. Of course, she was right. The official report was a collection of cold, hard data an objective after-action report that would allow future generations to study the events of that apocalyptic decade without being influenced by 
the human factor. But isn't the human factor what connects us so deeply to our past? Will future generations care as much for chronologies and casualty statistics as they would for the personal accounts of individuals not so different from themselves? By excluding the human factor, aren't we risking the kind of personal detachment from a history that may, heaven forbid, lead us one day to repeat it? And in the end, isn't the human factor the only true difference between us and the enemy we now refer to as the living dead? I presented this argument, perhaps less professionally than was appropriate, to my boss, who, after my final exclamation of, we can't let these stories die, responded immediately with, then don't. Write a book. You've still got all your notes and the legal freedom to use them. Who's stopping you from keeping these stories alive in the pages of your own expletive-deleted book? Some critics will, no doubt, take issue with the concept of a personal history book so soon after the end of worldwide hostilities. After all, it has been only 12 years since VA Day was declared in the continental United States, and barely a decade since the last major world power celebrated its deliverance on Victory in China Day. Given that most people consider VC Day to be the official end, then how can we have real perspective when, in the words of a UN colleague, we've been at peace about as long as we were at war? This is a valid argument and one that begs a response. In the case of this generation, those who have fought and suffered to win us this decade of peace, time is as much an enemy as it is an ally. Yes, the coming years will provide hindsight, adding greater wisdom to memories seen through the light of a matured, post-war world. But many of those memories may no longer exist. Trapped in bodies and spirits too damaged or infirm to see the fruits of their victory harvested. It is no great secret that global life expectancy is a mere shadow of its former pre-war figure. Malnutrition, pollution, the rise of previously eradicated ailments, even the United States, with its resurgent economy and universal health care are the present reality, there simply are not enough resources to care for all the physical and psychological casualties. It is because of this enemy, the enemy of time, that I have forsaken the luxury of hindsight and published these survivors' accounts. Perhaps decades from now, someone will take up the task of recording the recollections of the much older, much wiser survivors. Perhaps I might even be one of them. Although this is primarily a book of memories, it includes many of the details, technological, social, economic, and so on, found in the original commission report as they are related to the stories of those voices featured in these pages. This is their book, not mine and I have tried to maintain as invisible a presence as possible. Those questions included in the text are only there to illustrate those that might have been posed by readers. I have attempted to reserve judgment or commentary of any kind, and if there is a human factor that should be removed, let it be my own. That was from the introduction of World War Z by Max Brooks. I highly encourage you to check out some excerpts online. Um, I seriously think it's such a great book and so well written. Um, also a quick read if you are in the need for one of those. 
For our next work of zombie fiction, I'd like to take a look at Zone One by Colson Whitehead, Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winning author of The Underground Railroad, which you can bet is on my TBR list this year, especially after reading Zone One. I'd like to start with a review by Glenn Duncan from the New York Times. A literary novelist writing a genre novel is like an intellectual dating a porn star. It invites, it invites forgivable, forgivable prurience. What is that relationship like? Granted, the intellectuals hit hanky-panky pay dirt, but what's in it for the porn star? Conversation? Ideas? Deconstruction? With the human odd couples, the answer stays behind closed doors until divorce yields the tremulous interview or hemorrhaging imaging memoir, but with their novelistic analogs, it's all ours for less than $30. Colson Whitehead is a literary novelist, but his latest book, Zone One, features zombies, which means horror fans and gore gourmands will soon have him on their radar. He has my sympathy. I can see the disgruntled reviews on Amazon already. I don't get it. This book's supposed to be about zombies, but the author spends pages and pages talking about all this other stuff I'm not interested in. Broad-spectrum marketing will attract readers for whom having to look up cathected or brisant isn't just an irritant, but a moral affront. These readers will huff and writhe and swear their way through, if they make it through, and feel betrayed and outraged and migrained. But unless they're entirely beyond the beguilements of art, they will also feel fruitfully disturbed, because Zone 1 will have forced them, whether they signed up for it or not, to to see the strangeness of the familiar and the familiarity of the strange. The novel is set chiefly in Manhattan, sometime after a plague has turned a majority of the world's population into zombies, or as Whitehead calls them, skells, short for skeletons. Skells are of two kinds. They're either dozily rabid predators reduced to a monolithic imperative, eat living flesh, or they're stragglers, harmless catatonics piteously stuck at their former posts. Geographically, Zone 1 is everything south of Canal Street, a barriered region largely cleared of the undead by the military. Local authority is the brass at Fort Wonton in Chinatown, while national administrative power lies with the new provisional government in Buffalo. Civilization is attempting a comeback. According to propaganda, the American Phoenix is rising, thanks to frail corporate sponsorship and therapy for those suffering from PASD, post-apocalyptic stress disorder. There's an Orwellian slogan, We Make Tomorrow, which I heartily wish didn't remind me of Yes We Can, and a new morale-boosting anthem, Stop, Can You Hear the Eagle Roar, theme from Reconstruction. There are also sweepers, teams of quasi-military volunteers who go in after the Marines to pick off any stragglers the primary purge might have missed. A plot summary is impossible. There isn't a plot. To make matters worse, the protagonist is a laconic introvert of self-avowed mediocrity. The only ostensibly interesting things about him are his nickname, Mark Spitz, the explanation for which is withheld so long that the payoff stakes rise perilously high, his tendency to hallucinate falling ash, and his ominous flirtation with the mysterious forbidden thought. 
Spitz is a sweeper, and for the novel's three-day flashback-filled present, our guide to the new, and hence the old, reality. Let's deal with the porn star half of the, li- of the liaison first. Zone 1 as zombie novel. Notwithstanding the absent plot, Whitehead ticks a lot of boxes. There's an alternative world with its own idiom and logic. There are moments of Boshian mayhem. Heads are shot and lopped off. There's at least one evisceration. The sweepers trade mordant one-liners, and the scales shuffle and separate and tear the living to pieces whenever they can get their teeth into them. People are bitten, infected, transformed. On the face of it, there are genre thrills aplenty. The problem, or virtue, depending on your attention span, is that the intellectual half of the couple, zone one as literary novel, is always there too. You never get the porn star alone. Whatever is happening, Susan Sontag pointed out, something else is always going on. And it's this something else that Whitehead is really interested in. Of course it is. He's a literary writer, hardwired or self-schooled to avoid the cliched, the formulaic, the rote. He knows reality, even the reality of a world overrun by Gaga revenants, is always going to have more to it than the dictates of of genre allow. So, in the action sequences, we get essayistic asides and languid distensions, stray insights, surprising correspondences, ambivalence, paradox. We get, in short, an attempt to take the psychology of the premise seriously, to see if it makes a relevant shape. The shape it makes is a love story, more specifically, a story of lost love, At first glance, contemporary Americas, for its own cultural protocols, from sidewalk etiquette to sitcom vectors. But beyond that, humanity's love for ritual, its dependence on ways of imposing meaning on the world, for religious trinkets or scientific models or personal superstitions or long-term financial plans. For every gimmick, brand preference, boxed set, or mumbled prayer that helps us deny the absurdity of our predicament and the certainty of death. Some Zone 1 humans are still at it, post-apocalypse, framing the plague as God's righteous reboot or the planet's eco-backlash. But for the anti-heroic Mark Spitz, the framing days are over. What happens happens, and there is nothing behind it but a random biological swipe. Philosophically, the novels as existentially hardline as they come. Spitz's characterization, oblique, muted, hazy at the edges, which at first seems an imaginative underachievement, turns out to be opposite. His averageness makes him the perfect everyman survivor, sufficiently attached to the lost moors to lament them, but dull enough to bear their loss. Beauty could not thrive, and the awful was too commonplace to be of consequence. Only in the middle was their safety. He had led a mediocre life exceptional only in the magnitude of its unexceptionality. Stylistically, the novel takes a while to settle. Shoot from the hip phrases like a weather-beaten broad who dispensed smiles beneath a slumping orange beehive sit uneasily alongside sub-Victorian constructions like he was bereft of attractive propositions, constitutionally unaccustomed to enthusiasm, and generally malleable when it came to his parents' wishes. But once he finds his register, Whitehead writes with economy, texture, and punch. He has a talent for sardonic aphorism. Hope is a gateway drug, don't do it. 
and an ear for phonetic intrigue. Snipers train their scopes, muzzles crackling next to the squatting cornice gargoyles and the shells hopping on the rooftop tar. There will be grumbling from self-appointed aficionados of the undead. Sir, I think the author will find that zombies actually... And we'll have to listen for another season or two to critics batting around the notion that genre slumming is a recent trend. But none of that will hurt Zone 1, which is a cool, thoughtful, and for all its ludic violence, strangely tender novel. A celebration of modernity and a preemptive wake for its demise. If this is the intellectual and the porn star, they look pretty good together. For my money... They have a long and happy life ahead of them. I confess that when Zone 1 was first recommended to me and I looked it up on Amazon, I was a little freaked out by the rating. It only had about three stars, which seemed disparagingly low. However, my mind was set at ease with the first and voted most helpful review I read, which pretty much emphasized what the New York Times reviewer imagined happening, that a lot of people went into this novel expecting it to be a different animal entirely. I can see that. It's not as quick of a read as World War Z, and honestly, I was so grateful I'd bought the Kindle version of the book because I found myself learning new words every other page or so, and stopping stopping reading the paperback or hardcover to get out my dictionary would have made the book, uh, would have taken me twice as long. Now, speaking of learning new words, I had an epiphany while contemplating the names of the sweeper teams. In the novel, Mark Spitz is a member of the Omega team. Now, since that's the last letter of the Greek alphabet, I was wondering how they'd name any teams after his, and I assumed they'd start at the beginning again and use double letters. So, Alpha Alpha, Alpha Beta, get where I'm going here? Alpha and Beta actually are the root words of our modern word alphabet. I was so proud of myself for working that out. Now, for a slightly different take on the Greek alphabet, which I may regret sharing later, I'll tell you a story my mother told me right before I started my first teaching job. She was a retired teacher herself, and after helping me move to my new home in a totally new part of the state, she and my siblings, who'd also arrived in a show of support for this new chapter in my life, were out to dinner. And she started sharing all of these anecdotes from her time teaching while also managing to slip in a story about my behavior one day while my second grade teacher was being observed. For those not in the profession, observations involve your boss, usually a principal, coming into your classroom to observe a lesson and your classroom management skills. In some cases, it can affect whether you are rehired the following year, so it can be stressful. Mrs. White, wherever you are, I'd like to thank you for being an amazing teacher and also apologize for any trouble that arose that day as a result of me and my big mouth. I personally have no recollection of this incident, but according to my mom, Mrs. White was teaching the class about beginnings and endings that day. She pulled out two giant cutouts of Alpha and Omega and asked if anyone knew what they were. I did, and I was eager to share my knowledge, so I raised my hand eagerly, and Mrs. White called on me, since I was always good for an answer. My answer was not what she'd expected. In a wolf pack, there's an alpha male and an alpha female, and they're the only ones who are allowed to mate. 
I then went on for about five minutes on the mating habits and social hierarchy within a wolf pack while Mrs. White tried unsuccessfully to shut me up and the principal was cracking up in the back of the room. What can I say? I was obsessed with wolves. Blame the Disney movie they made of White Fang. My apologies for getting off topic. One last zombie book and then we'll go. A quick note about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Quirk Books editor Jason Rekulak developed the idea for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies after comparing a list of popular fanboy characters like ninjas, pirates, zombies, and monkeys with a list of public domain book titles such as War and Peace, Crime and Punishment, and Wuthering Heights. He turned the project over to writer Seth Graham Smith, who says, Rekulak called me one day out of the blue very excitedly, and he said, all I have is this title, and I can't stop thinking about this title. And he said, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. For whatever reason, it just struck me as the most brilliant thing I'd ever heard. Graham Smith began with the original text of Austen's novel, adding zombie and ninja elements while developing an overall plotline for the new material. You kill somebody off in Chapter 7, it has repercussions in Chapter 56. According to the author, the original text of the novel was well-suited for use as a zombie horror story. You have this fiercely independent heroine, you have this dashing heroic gentleman, you have a militia camped out for seemingly no reason whatsoever nearby, and people are always walking out here and there and taking carriage rides here and there. It was just ripe for gore and senseless violence, from my perspective anyway. And it turns out he was right. Also, side note, I love the fact that Jane Austen gets top billing. It's so brilliant how he took her work and added just a hint and managed to change so much while still keeping true to much of the original. Hopefully you'll see what I mean in this ex excerpt. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. Never was this truth more plain than during the recent attacks at Netherfield Park, in which a household of eighteen was slaughtered and consumed by a horde of the living dead. "'My dear Mr. Bennet,' said his lady to him one day, "'have you heard that Netherfield Park is occupied again?' Mr. Bennet replied that he had not, and went about his morning business of dagger-sharpening and musket-polishing, for attacks by the unmentionables had grown alarmingly frequent in recent weeks. "'But it is,' returned she. Mr. Bennet made no answer. "'Do you not want to know who has taken it?' cried his wife impatiently. "'Woman, I am attending to my musket. Prattle on if you must, but leave me to the defense of my estate.' This was invitation enough." "'Why, my dear, Mrs. Long says that Netherfield is taken by a young man of a large fortune, that he escaped London in a chase and four, just as the strange plague broke through the Manchester line.' "'What is his name?' "'Bingley, a single man of four or five thousand a year. What a fine thing for our girls!' "'How so? Can he train them in the ways of swordsmanship and musketry?' "'How can you be so tiresome? You must know that I am thinking of his marrying one of them.' marriage in times such as these surely this bingley has no such designs designs nonsense how can you talk so it is very likely that he may fall in love with one of them and therefore you must visit him as soon as he comes 
I see no occasion for this, for that, and besides, we mustn't busy the roads more than is absolutely necessary, lest we lose more horses and carriages to the unfortunate scourge that has so troubled our beloved Hertfordshire of late. But consider your daughters. I am considering them, silly woman. I would much prefer their minds be engaged in the deadly arts than clouded with dreams of marriage and fortune, as your own so clearly is. Go and see this, Bingley, if you must, though I warn you that none of our girls has much to recommend them. They are all silly and ignorant like their mother, the exception being Lizzie, who has something more of the killer instinct than her sisters. Mr. Bennet, how can you abuse your own children in such a way? You take delight in vexing me. You have no compassion for my poor nerves. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. I have heard of little else these last twenty years at least. Mr. Bennet was such an was so odd a mixture of quick parts, sarcastic humor, reserve, and self-discipline, that the experience of three-and-twenty years had been insufficient to make his wife understand his character. Her mind was less difficult to develop. She was a woman of mean understanding, little information, and uncertain temper. When she was discontented, she fancied herself nervous, and when she was nervous, as she was nearly all the time since the first outbreak of the strange plague in her youth, she sought solace in the comfort of the traditions which now seemed mere trifles to others. The business of Mr. Bennet's life was to keep his daughters alive. The business of Mrs. Bennet's was to get them married. That's it for today's episode of Blue Stocking. Certainly hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. That will help us get more listeners. And if you didn't enjoy it, please uh, tell an enemy. That's a great way to get revenge. Or you can email us bluestockingpod at gmail.com with any suggestions on how we can improve. One more note before I go. Uh, since this week is about zombies, I could not resist the chance to pay tribute to one of my favorite bands growing up, the Cranberries. So I hope you will enjoy this outro music. Thanks again. See you next time. Thanks.
palms and their palms and their palms and they comes in your head in your head they are crying in your head in your head zombie 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 e, e, what's in your head in your head zombie 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 e, e.